Hello and welcome to the Functional Spirituality Show. I'm your host, Ava Arani, and I'm so delighted to share with you the episode today where I've had a chat with Roger Castillo. So Roger is a spiritual teacher and he shares a really powerful, coherent teaching about non-doership and the nature of the human experience in relation to happiness. At its heart, it's a non-dual teaching, and we go into that a fair bit in the episode. However, if you, and I do recommend to check out Roger's teaching. He has a blog and a YouTube channel called Being Lived, Being Lived, where he shares this teaching Um, in a lot of elaborate detail and tackles it from many different sides and answers people's questions about it. So we don't go too much into the actual teaching here, but speak more about how it relates to a functional spiritual practice and how it fits into an overall approach for spiritual practitioners in this day and age. And I absolutely loved it. I hope you get a lot from it. I, I don't doubt it. We do um, go deep into our own histories and our own um, approaches and the ways that we have moved through spiritual practice, how we've tried different methods and systems and teachings and in the different ways that we've upgraded them to make them more relevant, more powerful and in the end, to bring us a deeper sense of happiness in daily living. So there's a lot to say about Roger, but I'm very sure that we'll have him back on the show in the near future. So for now, enjoy. Hey, welcome, Roger. So lovely to see you. Hi, Ava. Thank you. So why don't we start with your introduction? I'd love everyone to hear a little bit about your history. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we can look at it from many different uh, angles, but what seems more most relevant is for me to, especially when we're talking about spirituality and functional spirituality, which is what I really like to focus on, and it seems the topic of your podcast, is that um, what's most relevant is that I think I'm a pretty um, average sort of guy. I haven't had extreme life circumstances. Um, I grew up in a middle-class family, born in Malta, which is a little island in the Mediterranean. Um, went to a school and had, um, you know, normal friends, a, a loving family that had its, you know, um, things where, uh, you know, dad was very busy and so didn't always have that much time for kids, but normal, loving family, um, nothing to talk about in terms of the negatives of anything like that. We moved to Australia when I was 10 years old, and that was a great, exciting um, adventure. Um, went through school, was a, a, a reasonable sort of student, didn't get into tra- trouble, a sort of BC grade guy. So, you know, middle of the road again. Uh, what I did um, have as a history, I think, is that I was always very interested in how things worked. Um, apart and taking the motor out and plugging it into batteries and sticking it in different places trying to make things and interested in gardening as a kid and just playing building cubby houses you know 
once again, pretty standard stuff, but um, an interest in looking, in using what was here. And um, I, I think I was a pretty happy kid in a sense as I don't look back um, and see that my life would fill the heaviness with an uncomfortableness um, that is very much, you know, possibly how our life is filled. And um, then, you know, went through university once again, no great accolades, um, got into uh, public relations and then finance. And as I finished university, I think that's when seeking started in earnest, um, when I really came across books and information in books. Um, and it was fascinating to me that all this information was there. And so I guess um, that's when life changed. I, I still carried on working, but simultaneous to whatever was happening in daily life, I was really absorbing these descriptions about how we can see life differently. So, um, and, and now I, I spend my time uh, sharing a teaching that is essentially an embodiment of my own experience in life. And um, that is a life that I can say is suffering. Um, that doesn't mean that circumstance is not painful or unfortunate from time to time, but the extra load of suffering, um, which is a, a sort of a specific um, mindset that creates a very concrete feeling in life, um, I found is something that can change when life is seen differently and when the essence of who we are sort of reveals itself. Uh, so that's what I'd love to talk with you about. Yeah, perfect. Can you give, this is also, normally I'm used to just listening and I forgot that I'm actually having to engage in, to guide as well the conversation. Can you give a little bit of a timeline from, so um, Seeking started in earnest when you finished university. So what age was that and how old are you now? And maybe just a little bit about, um, you know, from when it started, what were the milestones of what you, of that journey up until now? Mm. Yeah, so um, the, the, the time frames more or less is that in hindsight, I, I look back at myself as a 13 or 14 year old um, uh, boy walking along, I remember Murray Street Mall in Perth, and there was a sort of evangelist guy with a um, <clears throat> placard saying the end is near and um, uh, sort of doomsday type stuff and a quote from the Bible. And I remember looking at it and thinking, why do you take that? It's meant to be metaphor. So even as a 13, 14 year old, I was, um, without knowing it, I, I was sort of interpreting things a little differently to some people. And obviously that's an extreme example. Um, and I do remember that, um, uh, even in my teenage years, there are some circumstances that, um, the way I responded to it showed that I wasn't interested in doing things um, <clears throat> as they were meant to be done, not irresponsibly um, so, but, you know, I'd sort of say, well, do we really need to do this? It doesn't seem like it um, needs to be done, even though it, it said we should do it. It doesn't make sense to do it. So, you know, I'd often put forward these arguments to my parents and they sort of said, well, it makes sense. Um, so something in terms of seeking was there before I actively started seeking. But I'd say at about the age of uh, 25, um, that's when I came across 
um, writings about stuff that I was obviously very interested in. And it was like, why hasn't anyone told me that this stuff is actually written about? I thought this was just things I thought about. So that was about age 25. I'm 47 now. Um, in, uh, what was it? 19, 1998, I went traveling. Um, I was born in 1973. So that was when I was 25, I guess. And I remember that my boss at work said, you know, I, I'm probably going to leave while you're planning on being away. And um, his client base, I was in finance and investment. He said, you know, you'll get my client base because you're my assistant and that's going to be significant for you. Um, and I sort of said, yeah, but I want to go on this backpacking trip that I had planned. And so I, I remember I was very much moving from what I felt like at, uh, at that point in time. And then a few years later, um, I came across the non-duality um, teachings. So uh, around 28, 29. Um, and that really opened up a different way of seeing life where it tangibly started to feel like it wasn't as real as I had always known it. Um, and that went on for about five years where uh, experiential recognition of the formless um, aspect of oneself set in. Um, and in 2005, I was lucky enough to land on Ramesh Balsaka's doorstep in Mumbai. And he was the translator for Nisargadatta Maharaj um, from you know, the, the, the teachings of Nisargadatta that are contained primarily in the book, I Am That. Uh, and that, that book had had such an impact on me. I had read it you know, probably seven times cover to cover. And each time I was a different person reading it. And when I came across Ramesh on the internet, when I was doing a search for Nisargadatta, um, and it said he was giving daily talks in India, he was the translator for Nisargadatta, I thought this is my way of paying my respects to Nisargadatta. So I, I went over just for 48 hours on a, a stopover to Europe. So went to Mumbai, um, had one satsang planned, got there, and Ramesh was not saying anything like um, Nisargadatta was, uh, he wasn't sharing from the same perspective, he was talking about daily living. And I guess that was um, the beginning of a probably a three-year um, integration of all of the realizations that had happened um, from the non-dual, top-down, esoteric, formless, you are awareness perspective. And Ramesh said, you know, you, that's not what life is about. You're not meant to live formless awareness. You need to come back down to earth and understand that the transformation is about a practical change that delivers something very practical in daily living for the human being. And at that point, I thought that was the complete um, misunderstanding of life and who we are, because the previous five years was an exploration into you are not the body, the world is not real, you are not, um, you know, a physical entity in life. And so when Ramesh said it's about living as the human being, as a body-mind organism doing in each moment whatever their circumstance. You know, if you're a, a father, you have to look after your child. If you're a, um, 
you know, you have a business, you have to go to work. And so um, for Ramesh to say that, it sort of solidified a world or seemed to solidify a world. And on one hand, it is solidifying a world and we need to solidify our participation and existence in this world um, in a way that I thought was non-complementary to the profound insights that had been shown earlier. Um, so that's, that was a particular... Um, particularly interesting, the the pre Ramesh and then after Ramesh was, I guess, the the two main phases. The everything is nothing, and you are formless awareness was what I received through the teachings of Ramana and Nisargadatta and Wei Wu Wei, and uh, then meeting Ramesh quite accidentally, um, thinking that I was going to go and immerse myself and thank Nisargadatta, um, I then found that the teachings went off in a different direction, which was a godsend. You know, if, um, I hadn't met Ramesh and I remained in what were pretty profound realizations um, about the formless, about awareness, I would be pretty confident in saying I wouldn't be a happy person now. I would be a, probably a dissociated person. Um, and there's a big difference. It's so lovely to hear that part of your story, which, you know, I obviously knew about, but um, yeah, how significant meeting Ramesh was for integrating your spiritual realizations. Um, when you first started to hear Ramesh's teaching, which was really about how to live daily life, mm -hmm. you know, with the guidance of this deeper truth of the non-dual teachings, um, I remember you saying that, you know, you were a little bit like angry or, um, were you relieved that there was somehow this completion to the process or were you, um, you know, did you, were you happy with just the non-dual recognition of your formless being or were you finding difficulty in how you related to your daily life and your family and your relationships or yourself and your mind? Um, or were you just, um, you know, wish you could have just gone all the way down that path at that time when, when you met Ramesh? Um, actually, I feel I did go all the way down that path. Um, and it, you could keep going, but I don't think you really get anywhere. Um, so the formless awareness path to me is about seeing something, connecting to something. Um, and it, it doesn't actually deliver um, peace of mind in daily living. And so that's why, because it's a piece of the puzzle. And so we think, um, I think generally we tend to think, okay, well, I've seen this, I can feel this different aspect of life, but it hasn't delivered something where I can say, ah, this is it. It definitely has delivered a recognition of life that is, oh, I see this is very significant. But as far as the experience, it always feels like, oh, there, something's missing. And so my assumption was something's missing. I need to go deeper into it. Um, it turns out in hindsight that something's missing. You've got to come back out of it, um, but take the connection with you. Um, and so to answer your question, I was quite... Um, uh, convinced that I was on the right path in deepening and going into the more and more of the nothingness because um, given my life circumstance, 
being that sort of um, solid, being a solitary person anyway, the exploration of the nothingness didn't really affect my daily living in a negative way. Um, but if I was honest and um, there was a sense something is missing, but I was convinced it was because I needed to go deeper. And in the first um, interaction I had with Ramesh, um, I was putting forward this non-dual realization and descriptions, but descriptions that were describing this shift in identity um, and seeing that uh, life is essentially an appearance and what I am is formless awareness that is invulnerable, untouched by the flow of life. And so I think Ramesh could sense that um, it wasn't just me spouting off words, but rather a, a, an accounting of my actual direct experience. Um, but what he wanted to know is, and asked, are you sensitive? Um, and I interpreted that as, you know, because you think everything's formless awareness, will you just, you know, be in the suffering, for example, would you say inappropriate things because um, you're disconnected from being human? And so my answer was, well, no, I don't find myself um, uh, insensitive. But there was this feeling inside something that I had always felt that I um, wasn't feeling life um, fully, that there wasn't a depth to life. So when he said, are you sensitive? It hit a nerve that I had to agree with. It was something I always felt there needs to be more depth. And um, I, th I didn't realize that these ideas, these concepts that had been so effective at revealing the formless awareness, I didn't realize that they had become lodged in my system as new beliefs that I am formless awareness, invulnerable, unchanging. Um, and the reason that they got to hide there as beliefs without me realizing them as beliefs is because the experience confirmed that. Um, and so it didn't seem like they were beliefs because they weren't just in the head. They, the, the experience was there. Um, but Ramesh kept pointing out the layer of the manifestation, the layer of life experience that was still very here, but though that way of seeing life had sort of overlooked and had diminished the physical um, aspect, the human aspect, um, and was only looking at life from this bigger picture, broad, broad point of view where the detail became irrelevant. Um, and so when when Ramesh kept saying, you know, but who is speaking to Ramesh? And, you know, my first response was consciousness is speaking with consciousness. And he said, Roger, don't be ridiculous. Roger is speaking with Ramesh and Ramesh is listening. And then Ramesh speaks to Roger and Roger listens. And, um, you know, one part of his teaching would agree it's consciousness speaking with consciousness because that is part of the um, understanding of oneness and non-duality. But once that's been realized, he's sort of saying, okay, now have you forgotten? Have you overlooked? Has that realization, is it preventing you from acknowledging that there is still a Roger? And it's as Roger that one needs to live.
as Ramesh that one needs to live. And it, it dawned on me um, in, in a particular moment that I have um, covered over the existence of a Roger with the concept, I am not the body. I am formless awareness, which had turned into an experiential knowing, but an experiential knowing that was now sort of disconnected and um, underemphasizing, uh, not focusing on an aspect that actually was still very much there. Mm-hmm. So it was a relief, but only in hindsight. Um, at the time, I thought that that was um, not necessary, but at the point when there was this realization a whole layer of belief fell away and that was the beginning of me feeling um, life from the point of view of the embodied human, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it's not that, um, you know, I am consciousness was was just a belief. Like you said, it is it was an experience for you, but the belief was is that that's the completion of this path, you know, the or the, um, exactly. the wholeness of this path is that, I am awareness and that is all to be pursued and that will give me the maximum fulfillment in this life is just um, realizing that deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, But rather Mm -hmm. it seems that actually integrating into daily life has been more of an interesting path to you. And um, I don't think you're the only one, you know, I think that, I mean, the question that I have next, um, which is something that I'm only just starting to explore and, and, articulate in my own um, practice is, you know, I, I know how absolutely crucial the recognition of our self, you know, our essential formless self is and how impactful that is for daily life and for our spiritual practice. It makes it all, it brings it all together. It's the foundation somehow. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also, you know, the psychological approach that you offer with these teachings about how to understand um, what that non-dual reality implies for the way that we relate to our world. Do you think mm-hmm. that's it? Is there just two parts? Is it the formless realization and integrating that psychologically? Or do you think there are other parts of the spiritual practice that we that are common commonly overlooked the way that you overlooked the daily life part so long ago is that it is it just the mm-hmm. daily living psychological understanding of our non-dual of the of the freedom or what else sure. um i i would say that in in broad terms if those two things get dealt with which is one a realization of the essence of the human that has been um, unrealized or, or had been overlooked for so long. So that, that really means half of the human being was not known. We've, we've essentially known one side of the coin. Um, is, so surely that, go on. What is that one side of the coin that we've been realizing and ignoring the other? Yeah, so the one side of the coin is I am the physical and the thoughts and the emotions, which I now very much say we are that. The human being includes very much the physical, the emotional, and thought. Um, but it, the other side of the coin is the formless aspect, what I sometimes call the quantum dimension of the human being um, that is about, you know, we can't, we don't get to see it when we're looking outward. We get to see the body when we're looking in the world. 
and the deeper part is um, is very much part of the human being, but it's unrecognized. It's it's been sort of left barren or left unoccupied. Um, and so, an awakening to that aspect of ourself, the formless, the quantum aspect, which is the essence. It's where the sense of I am, I exist, and where the awareness capacity comes from. Um, a connection to that is is essentially essential as far as I'm concerned. I don't think we can have um, a peaceful life if we don't know that side of the human being. Um, however, we can come to know that side of the human being, and yet in the um, in the psychology, certain beliefs about who we are um, can remain unchallenged, even when we know that that formless aspect. Um, and the reason that that tends to be is that we tend to know them in, an, in a non-integrated way. It's like where we can rest in being and know that I am formless. It's Life is not time-bound, not causal, that what I am has no problems, is self-contenting. Um, but we tend to know that more um, in isolation from functioning as a human being when we're meditating, when we're in um, taking time to ourselves, when we've sort of pulled out of daily life. Um, and so then when we find ourselves back in daily life, the psychological beliefs um, tend to kick, kick into existence. And I've found that a realization of self doesn't necessarily dissolve the deeply ingrained false ideas of who we are. And so we can have a, a sort of a fight going on in the system where there is um, two sort of misunderstanding and understanding of who we are and they can coexist. Mm-hmm. And so I think some very specific pointers need to be delivered that specifically undo um, and hi- highlight what the psychological identity that can fall away actually is in practical terms. So if, um, if pointers that are pointing not at our true nature as formless awareness, but pointing at the error that has been put in place, the psychological identity, so not an error put in place by us, we haven't made a mistake. It isn't really a mistake in life either, that's like that's how life develops. But relative to happiness for the human being, there are a set of false ideas that we can say are a misunderstanding of who we are, and they need to dissolve. So, um, I I do agree with what you're saying that it is essentially two main components that need to be addressed. But how they get addressed and for for different people. Um, is going to be vastly different. Everyone's particular path of how those two aspects get addressed, I think is going to be very unique. There are some people that will need to spend a lot of time in specifically in therapy that isn't got anything to do with spirituality just to um, get that psychological identity balanced enough through um, specific um, uh, professional techniques that have been developed to deal with um, certain certain traumas, and 
And if that doesn't happen and someone comes into spirituality, it may not be the answer for a particular person. And then for someone else with those deep traumas, they come into spirituality and spirituality, when I say spiritual, I mean specific spiritual teachings because life is spirituality. Um, someone else with deep traumas can come in and the spiritual teaching can actually effectively deal with the traumas, but that's not a given, I don't think. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think at the end you came to what I've been, what I was thinking about mostly, which is that, which is that kind of trauma piece, which is something that I'm um, experiencing now, you know, like these kind of deeper traumas. And when you say um, the teaching that you provide, which I don't think we'll, we'll go into the depth of it here and people can access, you know, you elaborating on your teaching, which is like you said, it's about breaking down the error, the psychological errors and misunderstandings people have in relation to, happiness in, in daily living. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that is such a powerful and, and crucial piece. Um, yet there, there is a capacity that's required where people can hear it somehow, you know, if it doesn't, if it's not understood, if it's not registered, then um, that piece mm -hmm. somehow doesn't work, you know? Um, and you know, my story, I identify with a completely different story to yours. Like, I feel like I was very disturbed as a young child, um, you know, sexual abuse from a very young age, and then some kind of, a lot of different emotional things. And, you know, maybe being um, of Middle Eastern heritage in North America growing up, I felt some, you know, different other kind of, mm. so now I'm starting to, to see that I've actually, um, that there are, a lot of deeper rooted beliefs that are are deeper actually than just those errors to happiness things that are um even more unconscious and and more latent and um i love things i love threes so i am sensing that there you know if i could break it into three pieces there is that um recognition of the non-dual nature of myself and the reality. Um, there's that psychological um, reconciliation of the non-dual mm -hmm. reality and, and my daily living and how to be happy in my daily life. And then there's something else about um, being with these fragmented pieces of myself and, you know, being with the pain of the individual, the collective, you know, these really unconscious pieces which I feel are actually getting um, more, like they're getting more and more weighty as time gets on, goes mm -hmm. on, the, the pain and the suffering on the planet, um, which, you know, if we think about our different parts of our brain, it really hijacks that part of our brain that could um, process and listen to the teaching that you share, you know, the predominant teaching that you share. And so I would be inclined to think that there maybe there are these kind of three pieces. Um, does that make sense? What do you think about that? Yeah, um, um, it, <clears throat> it definitely <clears throat> uh, resonates with me because um, the, the teaching is sort of um, putting forward a notion that we're not, you know, the ones that are making that is making life happen. Um, we're not the one that 
decides what thoughts we have, what actions we take, that that is a bigger movement of life and we're essentially an instrument, a vehicle through, through which that story is unfolding. Um, now, to someone um, whose system is structured in a way that um, has been traumatized by outcomes, um, the, the system has basically decided that it needs to try and control life. Um, because being not being in control can lead to what has happened, um, and so that that belief that I can control life um, and I need to control life, and that life needs to become um, a certain way in order for me to be happy if if that's that so that that's a, a psychological identity that gets put in place which to me is completely understandable i wouldn't suggest that it could happen any other way um and the stronger that identity is the more that the description i just put forward is going to be highly challenging to that um identity and so the receptivity if something resonates, it means that um, there's a receptivity in the system. And if that psychological entity that believes it needs to be the doer, it needs to be the one in control of life, um, if that's really strong, then certain concepts just aren't going to penetrate. They're not going to have a, a way in. Um, and in that case, different um, teachings that approach it from a less sort of threatening perspective um, are going to be much more um, receivable. Uh, and so there are some spiritual teachings that are more palatable to a, a certain psychological identity, but even spiritual teachings are not necessarily um, appropriate. So then there's the, the trauma um, counseling and psychology that, actually is not looking at the depth in a way that spirit, spirituality is because that's inappropriate. So they will look at resolving and reconciling that psychological identity to a point that is considered normal. Now, within spirituality, the psychological identity is the problem. There is no such thing as um, a psychological identity that is normal I mean, normal in the sense that, yes, of course, it it exists in life, but um, the psychological identity, even in its what society would say normal um, state, creates a layer of uncomfortableness in life. Um, so at, especially at the pointy end of non-dual teachings, um, the psychological identity is completely annihilated, or at least that's the aim. Um, but there's no point sticking a very strong psychological identity in, in, those, in those situations. So there is very much a place for um, a, a relaxing of the nervous system um, through specific um, therapies, specific activities like yoga. Is, yoga is very much a spiritual practice, but it also, um, in yin yoga and things like that, which you know very well, they're designed to also relax the nervous system. Uh, and I think that's very necessary for, for some people.
Yeah, I think something that um, I've gotten caught up on in the past is the idea of, because you were saying, um, you know, some identities, some psychological identities it may not work for. Um, but I'm starting to see now that there are so many different fragments of my identity that respond to different parts of this spectrum of spirituality, you know, um, mm-hmm. where there's a part of myself that is completely, you know, in this moment, say, you know, pure being, and there's a deep part of myself that will resonate and accept and um, deepen into that um, cue or, you know, in, into that reality, or there's a part of myself mm-hmm. that is completely receptive to the teaching that you put forth about just breaking down those, I would say almost like a, I mean, there are deep, deeply rooted beliefs of personal doership but they, for me, they feel like they're just on the surface. They can dissolve just with that, mm-hmm. with that cue and reminder if I need to in, in any moment. Um, and that is probably due to the depth of that first, you know, realization that I can remember. You know, you can remind me not to be scared of death and, and it will dissolve. Um, but then there are parts of me that are, they will not be, they will not resonate with the other parts. They're so, um, you know, so tight. And so mm. unconscious um, mm. that they, yeah, maybe they don't resonate with the language. They don't resonate with, with words, you know. They, they do just need to be felt and um, held in that kind of, you know, um, that inner child way. You know, they're not, the way that it has solidified its identity is not through the words and it's not through the being and it just needs to be approached in a different way. And, I think a part of my path um, recently has been about acknowledging that, you know, I've always known there's not one size that fits all. Mm-hmm. Um, yet so much have I tried to reconcile that there, that there is some kind of consistent one coherent answer, but really, and again, back to the three, I don't know how, I, I think it is now that I'm just having this conversation, it does seem like it's a continuum um, and that I prefer to break that continuum up into three, you know, broad categories of maybe um, more unconscious, body-based, you know, somatic mm-hmm. um, integration, healing kind of mm-hmm. approaches, more about, you know, the mis- addressing the misunderstanding psychologically and then um, about just deepening that non-dual um, realization. Yeah. Um, and I guess the amazing thing is um, that our seeking, uh, the way I see it, is we're being lived um, and we find ourselves moving and being attracted to those things that we need. And so then when someone looks at what their spiritual path is, it, it can include, um, you know, crystals and taking um, a salt bath once a week or twice a week or whatever. Whereas for someone else that, you know, doesn't happen. And why does it happen for one person? Because there's an intelligence in our system that is saying, you know, I need some of this. Some of this is appropriate for this part of myself. Um, And I've always looked at um, spiritual seeking processes sort of being um, extremely intelligent and it, it can hear the system can hear some profound wisdom and it just won't receive it uh, 
in, and that's part of the intelligence, actually. It's not receiving it because it's not ready for that. Um, and, and, so it, and then it is receiving and it resonates with those bits that it is ready for, which when we look at it as it unfolds is the developing of a, a perfectly unique path for each person. Um, that includes all sorts of different um, modalities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one, probably one last question that I um, wanted to ask you about was your teaching, which if people are not familiar with it, they can definitely look up Roger Castillo and look at being lived. And um, it's, it's endless, you know, not just your content, but the, um, like you said, every time you read, I am that you were a brand new person reading it. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. to unpack in your teaching. But for those who do know it, then this question will be a little bit more relevant. But do you think there's a part of your teaching that, not even your teaching, but maybe even Ramesh's teaching, if you want to just locate it in the past a little bit, that is no longer relevant? Like, has it changed in any way based on um, our time? you know, based on the collective, based mm-hmm. on now coronavirus pandemic time or, or anything like that? Do you feel it's shifted or evolved? Um, the, I would say no to that question. It hasn't, there, there isn't anything. But the reason being is that the way I see what Ramesh has done. So Ramesh was, when I met him, he was, uh, I don't know, 90, 88. And he died when he was 92 or 87. Um, he died when he was 92. He was... So an old Indian um, guru. However, um, he had spent most of his life um, as a senior executive at the Bank of India. And um, so he had an interesting um, background and an interesting personality that when he um, dedicated his life to seeking, when he retired as the managing director of the Bank of India, um, he said, let me approach this pragmatically um, because he'd spent 60 years um, listening to family gurus and and hadn't really got any answers that were completely satisfying. So he said, let me address this pragmatically. And he often used to say, you know, you can't be a banker and not be practical. Um, So he applied the same practical observation skills to his seeking once he retired and the the package that he's put forward is a package that you know came into existence more or less in the the current era um not current current but in the sort of late um 80s and 90s so it was still modern times and it wasn't interested in ritual or tradition so much a funny story with um uh, around even Nisargadatta, Ramana's um, teacher. Nisargadatta was asked by his students when um, he was sort of quite frail. And the student said, what would you like your samadhi to look like? And the samadhi is the, is the gravestone. Um, and he said, what do I want a samadhi for? So the dogs can piss on it. So um, Nisargadatta, you know, Nisargadatta was a bit brash, but what it sort of showed is that this teaching is not about um, tradition and um, it, it's, it's really about 
let's keep it real. Um, and even more so with Ramesh. So he took a lot of contemporary um, teachings like that of Krishnamurti of, um, and Nisargadatta's teachings and has created something that I think um, <clears throat> is very solid for a movement into the modern, modern era. So I haven't found anything in the teaching um, that I can say, oh, that doesn't hold true in my experience. Is there anything um, that's that after being in um, just as a Westerner, you know, and now having a global audience and being able to reach, you know, people everywhere that have such a, you know, diverse range of symptoms of human experience. Have you added anything in? Um, what I've tended to do, which Ramesh didn't do is go into the sort of drop down menus of the, the main headings. Um, <clears throat> And in going into the drop-down menus, what that really means is I can remember and I can see how I processed um, certain concepts that were delivered. Um, so, for example, one of the types of suffering is referred to as guilt. So the five sorts of guilt, blame, pride, worry, and expectation. And so Ramesh would sort of just leave it as guilt. And at some point it occurred to me through a, a process of contemplation that guilt includes all of the feelings of lack of self-worth, abandonment. They're essentially, I'm not good enough. I'm guilty of not being a good enough person. I haven't performed up to standard, so I'm guilty of not performing up to standard. And <clears throat> so these layers of revelation, essentially, and realizing, oh, that guilt, a word guilt, refers to these more complex feelings. Um, now, <clears throat> Ramesh didn't need to go into it because my contemplation went into it. And often I assume, you know, someone's contemplation is going to go into it in the same way I did. But what I do find is that I see that people often do get stuck um, and and the contemplation doesn't happen. So I have started to include more of this sort of detail. Um, and I guess it can confuse the teaching from on the one hand, it can make something very simple um, seem much more complex because it's being opened up. Um, but at the same time, opening it up can also serve a, a positive purpose. So that's something specifically that I've done. And also another thing that I've done um, that Ramesh didn't used to do is I keep focusing on this being aspect, the, um, the formless essence that is functioning through the human being. And for um, an odd reason that I am not entirely sure about, Ramesh doesn't talk about that whatsoever. So his teacher, Nisargadatta, focuses on that as the primary aspect of the, um, of the teaching. And Ramesh, having gone through that process, I think um, uh, saw it's actually about coming back and being a human being. Um, and so doesn't talk about that. But I, I, I feel like um, the two together are a very powerful a mix, especially given there are so many seekers that resonate and get so much out of the um, top-down non-dual uh, teachings. Um, I think 
it's nice to be able to keep that thread through the teaching while talking about daily living. Yeah, and um, for, you know, because your audience is so much bigger than Ramesh's would have been, you can't just assume that, like you, they had spent five years reading Nisargadatta. Um, and we've mm-hmm. already said that that is, it's important to have that deepening at the same time. Um, and so, but what about a, like I was mentioning, you know, maybe a third aspect, like maybe something a little bit more, um, you know, I don't know, body-based or mm-hmm. something that is not being, um, although maybe it is being really, you know, mm-hmm. being in the person somehow, um, but also not um, word-based, you know, also not a, a word teaching but something that is mm-hmm. you know, like yoga or something, do you feel like that um, is a necessary complement to what you teach or, or can be done, you know, not necessary? Um, well, I think anything can happen. So uh, I think someone's path, everyone's path will be different. So there will be some paths where it just happens with one thing. Um, my experience is that um, I there were times when massage, for example, was very important. There was a, a, a three-month period I was in Thailand, and I remember going for deep massages every day, and it was amazing, um, and it was part of my process. Um, and it was, it was dislodging things on an energetic level, and there were times when doing dynamic meditations, like breathing meditations, um, Osho-style um, things, proved to be extremely important in terms of moving energies. And there's other times where um, I had a hands-on healing session that did something. I don't know what it was. And I spent three years sitting in a jacuzzi for three hours a day um, uh, in the morning massaging, sort of self-massage, deep tissue massage. And um, the correlation between massaging the body and energies that would come up that were then seen from the perspective of the concepts that had described them as ingrained doership and attachment to outcome. Um, And so this link between the body um, where the energy, which is what the beliefs are in my view, the beliefs are essentially energetic loads in the body. um, That was essential um, to shake everything up and to complement and to provide a, a movement that would then be able that the intellectual understanding and the awareness could actually land on and and see these energies moving after they had been um, after some body work. Um, I really do trust though, that that becomes, will become very apparent to someone. There will be a feeling like, Oh, I need to go and be in, do some group Tantra work, for example. Um, that will become very apparent at a certain point in, in someone's seeking. Um, so I focus less on sort of suggesting what is appropriate in that regard, but rather saying, yes, um, I suspect that that is going to play a role. Yeah. And, and then. It, I don't know, unfolds. you know, um, in terms of, expecting or suspecting that you know people will will come to that conclusion on their own just like you said how the way that you elaborate on guilt um Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think, I think people need more help, you know, without trying to complicate things, but, um, you know, without people knowing that you had that, you know, three year jacuzzi period, they might, Mm -hmm. um, assume that your process was done entirely through, um, reading and, and, um, you know, breaking down that intellectual barriers to happiness when there was this, you know, the body was included, you know, in, in the process. Um, people oh, yeah, yeah. hear that, which is, they have now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I love walking. I think uh, walking is a, there's something uh, for me, something about walking and processing. So, um, you know, the intellectual side that you talk about um, reading books the the book sort of just gave the information, but it was very much um, then about seeing, which is in a way it is intellectual, but it's a very different sort of intellect. It's a applied into intellectuality that says, notice that everything arises within your consciousness. So that starts off as a concept, but we'll never really see that if we remain thinking about it it needs to be seen, which means the concept needs to point us to the present moment. And so walking through the forest or walking through Hyde Park, um, I lived in Northbridge and so Hyde Park is, is the park that I'd walk around for two hours, twice a day in a sort of bliss or not bliss, but very slow walk where I was appreciating the space in which I arose, the body exists in which all of the trees exist and realizing this is within my awareness. Um, and, and so then we say, well, is that intellectual or is that, um, so they, they all sort of also the lines between them are very blurred. Um, but you know, finding yoga, um, for, for me was also amazing. Um, yin yoga that does the same, has the same effect on ingrained, um, energies that are locked in the system. Uh, that, that's, that's amazing. So yeah, I, I would completely, um, encourage people to go to practitioners that are experts in the, in the body aspect, because, um, there's so much wisdom that we can receive from people just by having a half an hour talk with someone. Um, we get, a suggestion of something we've never done and only because of the suggestion might, might we try, try it. And then we might find that becomes a lifelong, um, enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, the thing that I'm pointing to is, you know, people are, I, I know from my own experience, um, we just kind of get locked into one idea of what we think the ideal spiritual path should be, you know, really uncomplicated and really kind of direct, but I'm seeing more and more that um, there is this horizontal element to it, something that I've always kind of denied and been like, you know, gone for that vertical um, approach of just, okay, I've always done yoga practice. I've been doing yoga for a long time, but it's always been about self-inquiry or, okay, I'm moving my body just to give it a bit of entertainment so I can do my self-inquiry practice. Um, but mm-hmm. recognizing that there's a lot more that actually um, I've overlooked and I need to address that is inside the body mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, and, 
Yeah, so I, you've definitely, um, I've gotten a lot of value out of just hearing um, about that and about your approach that, you know, even though you may not have had um, a lot of really traumatic things and had such a simple, ordinary upbringing that, you know, mm-hmm. walking and having having an, a really wide um, approach to your practice, walking for hours in, in Hyde Park or all of the jacuzzi and the um, massage and all of the different things that have also played a part because now the way that you teach is this really potent and because of how potent it is, this teaching and the the satsang that you give, which is your main offering is the satsang. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's so powerful, people might think that, that it is complete in itself and not, you know, like you said, you assume people would go inward and be like, well, I need to do this, you know, crazy tantra work or something else or try something else that my body's asking for. But Roger, who is, you know, he's only teaching this one thing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, just to open yeah. the mind a little bit for people. I, I, I think you're dead on, dead right. Is that we tend to um, start to see, even when we're, um, seeing life much more clearly, we still tend to forget that there are these huge um, array of different people practicing that aren't going to process things the way. And, and what seems like common sense to me um, is not. I remember being in finance and you know working certain things out was common sense to me. And a client would come in and I'd explain it. And they'd say, that's, that's amazing. I've never, no one's ever told me that. I thought, really? That, isn't that common sense? And it's not for some people. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it is worth, definitely worth mentioning that it isn't just about um, thinking and, and meditating or, or resting in being. And um, we haven't talked about meditation, maybe another time. Um, yeah. Because that's a whole... Uh, <laughs> whole new um, ballpark. So amazing, amazing. uh, um, Makes me think of a million other things, but it has been over an hour. So I will just thank you for your time now, Roger, and and let you go and um, promise everyone that you'll come back on again. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Next time we can uh, look more into the teaching if that's appropriate. Absolutely. I would love that. So Mm. thank you for joining us, Roger. Goodbye. Thank you, Ava. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like more resources and support on your journey, please search Functional Spirituality on Facebook and join us in the free group. I offer weekly live meditations as well as free courses and workshops in there. So hope to see you soon.